to go down in shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Welcome to another fantabulous edition of The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mott, and we've got an absolutely fantastic program for you tonight. But first, uh, I think uh, Mike and I would like to discuss a little bit uh, about uh, some of the more uh, uh, recent news events that have uh, caught our attentions, and I think that uh, the the Finally, the announcement that they have discovered, uh, as popular media has been putting it, uh, gravitational waves. So what do you think about right. that, Mike? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's very interesting that they finally have come out with the final uh, piece of the puzzle, according to Einstein, you know, as to, as to what would make his general theory, theory of relativity ring true and, and, and be accurate. They've been looking for it ever since he uh, he predicted that they would find evidence, and apparently the measurements they finally got matched the predicted measurements um but it sounds more like they're ripples you know in the uh, in the continuum well, now, than they are uh, anything so yeah well can you can you explain maybe just exactly you know what what it is what are gravitational waves well apparently they're disturbances in in the uh um, the speed of light and, and other other uh natural forces that are out there because the uh, they can measure they have to be super massive um, um, disturbances in the space-time continuum right. I think in this case there were two black holes that collided with each other um, basically tried to devour each other which of course is going to create just no telling what kind of chaos mm-hmm. um, so they they have figured out that's where these these disturbances came from maybe they were focused on this particular point because they suspected that that's where it was but they used a laser, and they can measure super subtle uh, disturbances in the laser itself as this thing sent out, as this collision sent out uh, uh, ripples in the space-time continuum. Right. So very interesting for sure. And uh, Well, now, okay, now, so um, Einstein predicted, and he basically said that gravity is an effect – where uh, any kind of mass, say like a planet, will right. distort space-time, almost like right. exactly. almost almost if you would envision space-time as being, say, like a sheet of rubber or plastic, and you would put a billiard ball on it, and, you know, a billiard ball would kind of drop down into that a little bit, kind of creating right. a, a cone, and then gravity then is is the effect. Uh, if you would have another object approaching that, it would spin around that cone as it falls down towards the mass of the object. I mean, that's that's kind of a layman's way of putting it. Uh, but uh, so, I mean, his theory was that if you had certain kinds of, I suppose, cataclysmic events that uh, it would cause like uh, a ripple, so to speak, if you would drop, say, 
like a rock into water. You know how you've got the the, the waves emanating then from that uh, from that point. And he was saying that uh, uh, you would have gravity waves going across uh, space time in much the same way. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, what this does is this opens up a whole new chapter in physics because once we start studying gravitational waves and figure out how it, how this distortion works, you know, we could be looking at the future, you know, providing we don't destroy ourselves as human beings or, or something else or something else doesn't destroy us. Uh, we could be looking at a future where we have warp drive, you know, that can warp the uh, the the, the space time continuum just like in Star Trek. And jump across because ultimately, if you can figure out how this these gravitational this underlying gravitational field of the whole universe works, you you might be able to do something like that. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because you know, I, and I know that he he's mostly been discredited, but you know, Bob Lazar. Uh, he said that the, 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 the UFOs or the flying disks that, that he worked on at the uh, secret operation in uh, Area 51, that right. they traveled by riding gravitational waves. And, right. and that was, I mean, that was one of the points that he got a lot of grief on because, it, you know, gravitational waves had not been confirmed and and in fact there were a lot of uh you know physicists who who felt that um uh, gravitational waves probably didn't exist that that was a uh, an extreme point of contention with uh, right. Einstein's second theory of relativity so, and it has been yeah. all all along yeah mm-hmm. exactly yeah so so here you have somebody who i mean gosh i mean this was what back in the 1980s you know Bob Lazar was saying that uh, this is how uh, the uh, the UFOs traveled. Uh, so I guess by what he's implying then is that um, space-time must be in a constant state of um, flux, fluctuations, uh, even though we can't um, measure these minute gravitational waves, they must be all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they've got to be anywhere where there's matter, right? I right. Mean, think. So, I mean, so, even the smallest amounts of matter then will cause yeah. uh, um, uh, gravitational radiation, which I guess that is is the proper term rather than gravitational waves, from what I was right. uh, what I was reading. Uh, right. Exactly. Well, I guess it sends the waves, the the radiation out in a wave like you know, in a wavelength. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, and that's interesting also because you know Nikola Tesla who, I mean, he was not a fan of um, Einstein's theory of relativity. And he said that gravity was a form of radiation. So it just makes it just makes you wonder if maybe both of these guys were really on the same page, but they were just using different terminologies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, because, uh, you know, uh, Tesla, he thought the universe... Um, that, that things worked through, um, you know, like waves and frequency and, and things, and things like that, which, um, is, is true. Right. But, um, you know, I think that it's kind of like the, uh, the old story of the blind men, uh, examining an elephant. 
You know, I think yeah, it, it's I very think, it's very much like that. Yeah, I mean, I what, think, what's so funny is think about it. All the people that used to scoff at this, that thought they had it all figured out, it reminds me of all the aspects of uh, a fourteen research where everybody's always scoffing about these theories. And of course, the evidence for these things is there, just like it was to some extent for gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. But until they're hit over the head with it like a mallet, they'll never acknowledge it. <laughs> You know? uh, yeah, sometimes that's what it takes, that uh, the old uh, uh, mallet uh, hypothesis. <laughs> or, of course, my favorite uh, um, my favorite one was, uh, God, how, how did it go? It was something along the lines of science only progresses through death. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. Para- I'm, para- I'm paraphrasing it there. I think it was one death at a time or something One like death that. at a time, yeah. right. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, yeah. and, it, and it's true because, I mean, you know, you have the old guard who is loath to accept any new ideas, and it's only after uh, these people die, and then you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, New scientists come in who are a little bit more open-minded, but then again, it it turns around and uh, eventually, you know, they uh, end up being just as closed-minded as uh, oh, yeah. you know as their past peers. Of course, yeah. like we've talked about before, you know, with with uh, Wegener's uh, continental drift theory, for instance. I mean, oh yeah, they just they destroyed the guy, and he ended up being right. They just changed the name of his theory and a few very small details, and now they call it plate tectonics. But they ruined they ruined Wagner. They they destroyed his career because he was not being orthodox and, and adhering to the dogma, you know. Well, so. you know, that's one of those things. I mean, any any kid who ever studied a globe, yeah, you know, one of the first things he ever noticed was how similar they, Africa, yeah. you know, that uh, South America fits just perfectly into that space in Africa. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it just makes you wonder, though. I mean, you know, these uh, you know, scientists and geologists, you know, they had to have made the same kinds of observations. And it's just like, you know, what, did they think it was just coincidence? Or, you know, it, 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 it just makes you wonder, you know, what happens with these people when they get older and... Yeah. Uh, these observations they made when they were younger, they then tend to, at least publicly, uh, poo-poo. <laughs> well, you know, they they uh, they have egos at stake, and they have uh, not just egos, but uh, um, their tenure, their reputations, their their uh, claim to fame after they're gone. All that kind of stuff. Well, you know, yeah, so. that, that's true. And I can't say as I actually blame them too much because, like, you know, like you said, I mean, you we've seen what's happened uh, to um, dissident thinking. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you have you have somebody who who puts out a theory that that goes against. Uh, everybody else, and I mean, you might as well just put a rope around his neck and uh, tie it to the tree, uh, and you know, and, and whip the horse because that's that's what's going to happen to him. They just basically hang themselves. And so I can't really say as I blame a lot of these people um, uh, from not going, uh, not wanting to go forward with uh, these uh, these new ideas because it can be, you know. Uh, it could be a death nail. I mean, and you even you look at um, 
very well-renowned scientist, you know, Stephen Hawking's, you know, I mean, he's gotten a lot of grief recently with uh, some of the things that he's been saying. And I mean, this was a guy that, uh, I mean, you know, his, his peers, I mean, you know, were genuflecting in front of him, but, uh, you know, uh, let him say something that goes against the grain and, uh, you know, they're ready to tar and feather him. Yeah, absolutely. That's just the way it is too. And it works that way with guys like us, you know, who, who step on the toes, you know, they, uh, <laughs> we get a lot of pushback from, from the small-minded, the narrow-minded, and the ignorant, and the fr- the fearful, the fearful. Yeah, fearful. There, there you go. I mean, I, I that's I, a big part of it. Yeah, I think I think fear does does have uh, you know, a lot a lot to do with it, and uh, you know, it's just uh, um, you know, it, it, it's just unfortunate. It's 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 part of the hu- it's part of the human condition, and it's just something that uh, I think that. Uh, we'll be faced with for a long, long time until, like you said, uh, uh, egos stop becoming such a predominant emotion. Emotion would that would that be the correct term? Ego would be is is, is that an emotion? <laughs> well, it can, it can. I would say that uh, being uh, what's the good word? What good way to put this? Being fearfully arrogant ties into being egotistical mm-hmm. yeah so egotistical might be a, a it's a it's a an adjective which kind of fits mm-hmm. an emotional mindset so well i mean i suppose that you know humanity as a whole just needs to uh uh we're you know we're, we're still so young as a species i mean you you look at everything that we we have done it's amazing but as a species we have not really been on this planet for that long a time I no, mean, you know, we have it. Like what, maybe uh, ten thousand years at the most for this form of uh, you know Homo sapiens sapiens. I mean, yeah, I I know that um, you know as a species we emerged a little bit further back than that, but I think that really it's just been within like the last ten thousand years that we've really uh, uh, come into our own. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, you look at say like the development of um, you know like arrows and spears and th- and things like that. I mean, you know, you have like this. Uh, you know, according to the fossil record, I mean, people when they when they develop say like uh, uh, spears, then it was like, oh, gosh, I mean, thousands of years before somebody got the idea of using a bow and arrow, and then from that it was another like you know ten thousand years before we went any further than that, and then really within the last say you know five thousand years we really took a big jump in our development because yeah i mean you know now it's just like year by year we are coming up with uh, uh, new and different things and new ways to uh, 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 look at old things you know it's just it, it, it's amazing how fast yeah it, it's interesting i think we're seeing a dichotomy though growing within the general population you know there are several studies that have been done that indicate that humanity is getting rapidly more stupid uh, <laughs> dumber and dumber with each generation and I believe that has to do with certain populations that, that basically you, you've removed natural selection from the mix now. And so certain, you know, mindsets gravitate to each other and they reproduce and so forth. Plus you have all the chemicals in the environment and all that kind of stuff. So there, there's a certain element that keeps us moving forward exponentially. That's the more, those are the people who are not, they're parts of the groups that aren't degenerating 
as quickly in terms of the intellect. But uh, it, it's interesting because I, I have to wonder if the whole scenario of the Eloy and the Morlock isn't becoming mm. a more and more realistic thing, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, well, uh, and if and if anybody is wondering what we're talking about, look for a movie called Idiocracy. Yes, and watch it, and, and what, you, you'll and, have and a better I, understanding. I, that's <laughs> right, and and a movie, and even better book, two movies actually, and a book called The Time Machine by H. G. Wells. Oh yes, yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. the book yeah. The Time Machine is excellent. You know, the movie's good. The the the, the original movie. Uh, the, yeah, the one with, with uh, Rod Taylor was was the one. Yeah. Is the one to see. Yeah, yeah, it is. But but read the book first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah read the book first. All right. Well, let's. Uh, um, uh, we need to uh, uh, go to our break here, Mike, so we can bring our guest on. And our guest right. tonight is Peter Robbins, and and I'm really excited to have. Uh, 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 Peter on our show because uh, Peter is an investigative writer and he specializes in uh, the subject of UFOs. You know, he has more than 35 years experience as a writer, researcher, investigator, lecturer, and author. You know, I mean, we hear him. He's been on lots of radio shows. Uh, he's he's uh, done uh, TV programs and documentaries. You know, uh, um, he, he's the co-author of Left at East Gaste. A first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents. Uh, he has other books like um, uh, Halt in Woodbridge, an Air Force Colonel's 30-year fight to silence an authentic UFO whistleblower. Uh, he uh, was was uh, very good friends and uh, worked with uh, uh, Bud Hopkins, and uh, as, as well, uh, you know, Peter is a, a photographer and an artist and just just an all-around great guy, so I'm really excited that uh, that he has graciously agreed to be on our show tonight. <laughs> yeah, sounds great, man. Sounds right. really good. Well, let's go ahead and go to our break here, and when we come back, uh, we will be talking with uh, Peter Robbins. You are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz. Stay tuned. We will be right back. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. 
Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to mrufo8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. mrufo8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text, stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Edge. I'm Tim Swartz, and our very special guest tonight is Peter Robbins. Peter, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing tonight? Very well. Yourself? Oh, well, we're uh, a little little cold here in uh, southern Indiana, but uh, I guess this time of year, that's uh, what can you expect? Oh, my. Uh, here it's a, a balmy three degrees, and um, the sun was even out for three minutes. <laughs> it's the well, warmest part of the day. I started to say, well, I guess, I guess you've got it a little worse than we do because it's it's uh, it's 15 degrees here. So, the irony is that um, this would be fairly standard up until a year or two ago at this time of year. Uh, but once again, we're in the warmest uh, 
winter on record, and uh, it's very apparent up here in central New York State. But <laughs> these few days, <laughs> no, it'll be 20 or 30 below tonight. Uh, and and Mike, what uh, what is it? Just uh, just curious in uh, uh, Mississippi. It's uh, warm today, cool at night. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, when you use the word warm, Mike, give us a number. I think it's like uh, sixty five today. Ah. that's not what I wanted to hear. But no, thank you. no. <laughs> 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 uh, okay, yeah. Well, we'll just we'll just leave Mike out of the conversation. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no bad blood here. You know. <laughs> no, no. Um, Peter, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that we can uh, start this show talking to you about, but you know, yeah. there's there's one subject that. Um, I have always been interested in, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that uh, that you're interested in this as well. And I don't, you know, nowadays I don't know how much attention this really gets, but uh, um, let's talk about uh, Wilhelm Reich and mm. Oregon Energy. Uh, and, I, and I guess this is something that, has, uh, uh, like myself, has fascinated you for quite a, a long time as well. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, uh, I research and speak on and write about a lot of subjects and have given a number of papers on Dr. Reich's life and work, scientific discoveries, um, and of course uh, his uh, study of UFOs and interactions with them, quite simply. But um, it's not just uh, another subject uh, for me. I, I first read... Um, some of one of Reich's books. Uh, at a certain point, I realized I was in over my head when I was still a teenager, uh, my first year at university, and it was a life-changing experience. I um, continued to read over the next 10 years or so, um, and although there is a connection to uh, the subject of UFOs again, it never gave it a second thought, um, had no interest in the subject until uh, probably close to 10 years after I started reading his work, made mm -hmm. the connection, and uh, got even more interested. And in the later 70s, went into therapy with a, a remarkable man, Dr. Ellsworth F. Baker, who had been trained by Reich in the method that he developed, and for the last 11 years of Dr. Reich's life was his first assistant. And in the years that I, I spent uh, as a patient of Dr. Baker's, um, I met so many of the people who were still alive at the time who had either worked with him, studied with him, uh, been patients, uh, lovers even, and um, became even more involved in the subject. Uh, I don't think there's a greater body of unified scientific knowledge and social observation that is all but completely ignored uh, by the Western world. And... Um, it brings up too much anxiety in a lot of people, um, certain aspects of it, but uh, it's so worth reading his books, and um, I would say reading about him, but there are bloody few books written with any intelligence or objectivity about him. I can give you a couple off the top of my mind for anybody that actually still reads books among your listenership. <laughs> uh, bless their hearts. Yeah, um, really. <laughs> The most recent is by Dr. James DeMeo. It's called In Defense of Wilhelm Reich. Uh, the biography that will always stand as the definitive one uh, came out 
probably 30 years ago, and I don't think there'll ever be a better one. Uh, Dr. Myron Sharif, the author, knew Reich and uh, was very involved in the work for most of his life. It's called Fury on Earth. Um, one of my favorites is a book simply called Organomy, which was the, science, the name that he gave to um, the science that developed around his work. And, uh, you know, insecure people love to have a little fun at the expense of funny-sounding words. He chose the word because it was something of a hybrid uh, between organism and orgasm. Right. And um, it is simply the science of how energy functions in the living and non-living realm. And in one sense is reduced to one of the most brilliant theories uh, or constructs um, I've ever come across in my life. And it governs everything from the splitting of an amoeba to the human orgasm to a huge storm to the formation of star systems, which is tension, as in mechanical tension, charge, building of electrical, electrical or energetic charge, discharge, relaxation. And uh, that is a terrifying equation for most of the people on Earth. And mm -hmm. I, I think if you take it down to the baseline, um, Reich studies about human sexuality, blocked energy, uh, is kind of a, the greatest tragedy of humanity. And, I mean, let's face it, if the great majority of people on Earth had healthy, happy, satisfying sex lives, do you think we would be dealing with the kind of situation that we historically are in the Middle East? Uh, and, and many other crises rooted in human fear, rage, uh, undischarged anger, um, inability to surrender uh, to your deepest impulses, etc. Um, it's such a huge sweeping subject. I mean, I continue to learn. Uh, I read, reread books irregularly that I first read 30, 40 years ago. And of course, you know, you, you learn each time you do. Um, you have any specific questions, though, about Reich's life, uh, which was, I mean, someday it will be the subject of a, I hope, a phenomenal screenplay, although that's almost insulting compared to the sweep of his discoveries, observations, uh, interactions with extraordinary people, observations about the times he grew up in and the like. Well, that's that's just it about Reich is that, uh, I mean, we are talking about an extremely highly educated man. I mean, he's uh, he's studied under Freud, right? Am I correct? Well, um, to, to cut back a little bit, um, okay. he was born in the late 1890s in what was the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, father very rigid bureaucrat, mother, very sensitive uh, artist, piano instructor. And he and his brother were privately educated on what amounted to a small estate. Uh, and for Reich observing nature and, you know, animals mating and plants growing and things dying uh, in the natural world around him informed a lot of his thinking uh, in later life. Uh, ultimately, um, war was declared, and he uh, was a artillery officer in the uh, army. Uh, of course, <coughs> totally defeated. Um, the estate wiped out. Uh, he made his way to Vienna, and being so brilliant, um, he basically got himself into medical school, tutored other students to pay his bills, and 
I think like any intellectual and person of science and medicine at the time, especially in that part of the world, uh, was very drawn to the radical theories and work and um, what became the core of the birth of psychoanalysis mm -hmm. in Vienna in uh, the early 20s. And to cut to the chase, presented himself to Freud, who recognized his genius. Reich went on to become a very close assistant for the next six years or so and was part of the core of the first um, wave of Freudians coming right out of um, working directly with Dr. Freud. They split in 1929, in great part because Reich, um, <clears throat> who, working in the Freudian method, realized uh, he had to go further. Uh, you know, whether or not you've ever been in Freudian therapy, we all understand that caricature of somebody lying on their chaise lounge with, you know, the doctor with the beard sitting just outside of their range of vision, taking notes with the furrowed brow. Right. Uh, that Freudians follow. And, you know, you, you read Freud's memoirs and, and things that are in the Freud archives in Vienna, and you learn something kind of shocking, hysterical, and I think ultimately sort of tragic in a um, therapeutic uh, way, which was Freud was decidedly uncomfortable having his patients stare directly into his eyes. Hmm. And so he moved his chair. Uh, Reich turned the chair around, and he not only allowed the patient to stare into his face, he stared right back at them. Mm -hmm. And as their expressions would change based on what they were saying or uh, repressing or trying to get to, he was a human mirror, which often accelerated the process of uh, catharsis and getting to that memory that needed to be dealt with or explored or whatever. Um, he felt ultimately that um, Dr. Freud's at the time extremely radical theory that much if not most um, neuroses was rooted in uh, sexual pathology, uh, inability to um, you know fully climax to uh, uh, being informed by all you know religious guilt or what have you mm -hmm. um, that that was responsible for literally all. Uh, neuroses as far as blocked energy went, and that was a bit too much for Freud. He uh, left the Freudians, and that's when he rumors began to circulate for the first time that he had gone insane. Uh, we know now from historical fact that um, those rumors came out of uh, the people who had been closest to him in Freud's circle, exercising a fair amount of uh, jealousy, and of course their rationale was the proof that he had gone crazy was that he had left this extraordinarily uh, privileged position by Dr. Freud's side. Huh. Sounds uh, almost like a cult, you know, the way... That well, it sounds like what, what you and I were talking about leading into yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not... there, there is value to um, that kind of analysis, um, but at the same time, it's so ironically rooted in, in Freud's idiosyncrasies as far as the form that it's administered by and... Um, Again, with Reich, the method of therapeutic work that he developed was a minimum of talk and a maximum of physical um, activity. You would uh, be on that bed or chaise lounge, and you would be at certain points pounding your arms or kicking your legs or screaming. Uh, and often that memory locked in the musculature held there sometimes for decades 
would come forward and then be explored uh, in terms of words. Um, it is a remarkable therapy, and there are probably countless people who call themselves Reikian therapists. I don't know. There may be X number of dozen trained medical organomists in the world. These are physicians who become psychiatrists who then go through years of additional training uh, administered by a very uh, small group uh, of people following in that method. Um, and, you know, essentially to be a Reikian therapist, I think the protocol is you touch your finger to your nose, turn around three times, and hang out your shingle. Uh, <laughs> to become a medical ergonomist takes many years of careful supervision. Uh, you are unleashing feelings, emotions in a human being that, you know, in an extreme situation um, could be pathological for them if not properly overseen by somebody who not only knows the human mind to a great degree, but the body as well. Hence mm -hmm. why Reich insisted that all but one, uh, a brilliant Norwegian uh, named Ola Rachnes, be full physician psychiatrist before he would even consider training them. And um, he was practicing his method um, at the invitation of the Soviets in the late 20s, early 30s, <clears throat> when he still felt there was some hope for this great social experiment, which um, not only did he uh, walk away from, but was an avid anti-communist for the rest of his life, um, they invited him to set up clinics for workers um, hmm. in certain key areas, and with the idea that if he could help them therapeutically, they'd become better workers. Uh, what happened as they would um, develop what he called in a somewhat dispassionate way a meaningful sexual equilibrium, and the great majority of these people were uneducated, working people, often coming from a, um, a Russian Orthodox background and indoctrination by the party. And what was happening more than not was they were, in so many words, kind of putting themselves as a loving couple mm, first, okay. their right. own happiness and their family, which was a nightmare for the Soviets. And so the next wave of rumors went out that he had gone insane. <laughs> he managed to uh, make his way to Austria, where he practiced as the Weimar Republic was breaking down, and wrote a, well, <clears throat> the number of books that he wrote, and the level of brilliance still blows my mind, but at the time he wrote a book uh, called People in Trouble, um, which literally uh, observed um, how fascism, whether on the left or right, um, and some people feel the word only applies in one direction, uh, was functionally identical. You could see the black fascists, that he, as he called them, the rising Nazi party a mile away, mm. you know, with their rigid bodies and their strutting and their absurdly, you know, uh, peacock kind of uniforms. And at the other extreme were <clears throat> the so-called scientific socialists, the communists, uh, the Stalinists, who you know, dressed in the manner of workers, <clears throat> but as, say, an animal farm, some workers being more equal than others, um, <laughs> who plied their evilness in a much different style. Um, both Hitler and Stalin knew who he was. And, in fact, he managed to escape uh, Germany and Austria days um, after Hitler had consolidated power. And I've never had the story confirmed, but... Um, I've heard it from several reliable sources back in the day that when he went through uh, exit customs that the uh, uh, 
customs officer, who of course was uh, had to be a party member, recognized him and mm. for his own personal reasons let him go. Wow. Uh, he escaped to Norway where he lived for some years and developed research, uh, radical research around cancer formation. Uh, was driven out of Norway in part by a, a terrible um, series of attacks in the press and at that time, about 1940 or so, was invited to become a teacher at the New School for Social Research in Manhattan and that's when he came to America. Hmm. It, it 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 sounds like that throughout his life he was constantly being forced to run away from a political ideology. Well, it stopped there. Um, when he got to the States, he settled in Queens, New York, which was quite rural at the time, uh, the county I grew up in, and continued to practice and then begin to train uh, other physicians in his method, but came to feel that... Um, as in, as many breakthroughs as his therapy offered <clears throat> to somebody willing to go through a certain amount of characterological hell to get better uh, than they were when they had gone into therapy, in his words, you can't straighten a bent tree. And he started to turn more of his attention to the health and the welfare of infants and babies and how, you know, they can their psyches can be smashed and destroyed before they're even conscious because of miserable, unhappy, um, incredibly inappropriate behavior of, of parents and, you know, adults around them. At that time also, his thoughts about energetic functioning expanded into storm fronts and ultimately into the cosmos. And in the early 50s, he departed New York and moved to Rangeley, Maine, in southern Maine, uh, bought a good-sized property of several hundred acres built one of the most remarkably functional buildings I've ever been in. It's now the home of the Wilhelm Reich Museum. And uh, if you go online, you can chase them down. Don't just show up. It's not always open, and certainly not this time of year. But um, it is this flawless combination of home, library, research area, medical research facility, training um, area, painting studio, observatory, it's quite exquisite. I mean, he's such a natural architect, and in later life he also painted, uh, you know, primitive but extremely memorable uh, energetic paintings in spirit, not unlike Van Gogh. Um, so much, you know, I mean, we, we could literally talk about this for days on end. Um, mm -hmm. He had uh, presented his discoveries to Einstein in 1940. And Einstein's response was, "Is if this is true, it would be a bomb in physics. I, I you know, translates a little differently, but that was the way it was said. Um, one other book I want to recommend before uh, moving on. Mm -hmm. It's a very important one. I think only in the last year or two has become available in anything but the original first edition. It's called Wilhelm Reich and the Cold War by Jim Martin. Jim, wonderful guy, brilliant researcher, um, uh, really did a, a tremendous job on this, and it, it shows Reich in his times um, and the people that he interacted with and who some of them were. Um, but because of his work around human sexuality, of course, he became a target of interest for, you know, uh, right-wing and left-wing uh, people uh, who really could not tolerate uh, the deep and sensitive truths that his work uh, was about. And 
the FDA, which in the 50s uh, under Eisenhower, and it's still a, <laughs> an organization with more problems and benefits, I think, but at the time it was run by really thugs as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. and a really creepy journalist named Mildred Edie Brady first wrote a specious, completely inaccurate article uh, on Reich in 1947 that brought him to the attention of the FDA as obviously a sex quack. Um, and it was just a matter of catching him, except that none of his patients, none of the patients of anyone he trained ever, ever complained in mm. any respect. And ultimately, in 1955 or six, they caught him on a technicality. The best they could do was uh, say you cannot ship your experimental medical devices interstate. Well, they weren't really experimental, but they didn't know how to label them. They worked. I used uh, a Ricogone energy accumulator on and off since I was a teenager, and they're very real, mm -hmm. as well as uh, some of his other very simple but very powerful inventions. And one of his physicians had shipped it um, from Maine to New York, was willing to take responsibility. Reich decided to do it instead and made maybe the worst decision of his professional life, which is he felt he could use this trial as a way of presenting his work you know, in an official form. The judge would have none of it. He was convicted on uh, interstate shipping of uh, experimental medical device, was sentenced to a year in Allenwood Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, and was found dead in his cell about a week before he was scheduled for release, the manuscript to his last book, Missing. I'm mm. not even talking about his UFO work here, but... Um, right. He is probably the most misunderstood uh, and reviled person in, I don't know, I think the last millennium or so. Some people would put up other folks against him in the world of science. But he uh, he suffered at the Galileo level, and they crucified him, and he died. Um, the work continues to be studied, followed, and developed in certain key areas um, all over the world. Um uh, and in fact, um, this summer I'll be returning to Greece to give a series of talks uh, on Reich, Reich and UFOs, Reich uh, in America in the 50s and the climate uh, that he came into as his work on UFOs became public and how that was used against him. Um, Good-sized community in Greece and in many other European countries. Uh, and the work goes on. But again, most people will never read a book by him. Uh, and I would suggest that they go online to a good book site like Abe Books, one of my favorite used uh, and collectible and, you know, everyday book uh, uh, stores online. That's Abe, like Abe Lincoln, abebooks.com. And you can buy ever so many of his books uh, uh, for a few dollars each and begin to potentially really enrich your own life and understand uh, the power uh, and the logic and the extraordinarily well-documented research uh, behind every aspect of his work. Well, now, didn't uh, after he was convicted, didn't the uh, the, the government uh, gather up a lot of his books and just basically have a book burning? Well, um, in so many words, uh, that began before he was convicted. In fact, uh, mm. to this government's eternal shame, I think, uh, more than eight tons of original um, first editions uh, and books. Um, the, the 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 burning justification was that Reich called this 
basic energy that animates us and that we live in a sea of, orgone energy. Mm -hmm. And the FDA, knowing, of course, that this was nonsense, there is no such thing, it's just a silly, uh, you know, uh, bit of nonsense to get you screwed or take your money. Um, and so what they stated was if the term orgone energy appeared in any publication, um, it would be considered a misrepresentation quackery and that literature should be destroyed. Wow. And many of a good part of that tonnage, uh, Tim, was destroyed because orgone energy was never mentioned in the book, but was mentioned on the flyleaf relative to, uh, you know, another book that might have its name. It um. began about... God, 52 or 54, and continued right up until either the last few months, I think the last few months of the Eisenhower administration, uh, his literature was burned in, in government incinerators, uh, I guess an offhand compliment on a certain level. Uh, those so much for freedom of speech, though, right? Yeah, uh, that's how frightening it was um, to them, and um, again, I, there's no quick fix here. Um I studied this material for some years as a very young, enthusiastic person before it began to really hit me what a brilliant man this was and how important this work was. It's governed a tremendous amount of the way I live my life ever since, and I'm doing fine. And, um, again, would recommend it to anybody who is simply interested or wants to uh, begin an education into a body of scientifically unified work that deals with energy, and of course, that's what it's all about. Well, do you do you think that um, that 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 people or you know, and I, I hate to use the word the scientific community because I know how close-minded they are, but do you think that uh, uh, people are starting? Um, now to uh, maybe realize uh, uh, that he wasn't just some kind of uh, you know charlatan, you know, trying to sell magic crystals or you know things like that, you know, or or, or is he still basically uh, listed in that uh, that big list of uh, quacks and nuts? Depends who you talk to. Uh, there have always been people um, who have taken his work very seriously read it, studied it, lived it, um, and that generation continues to be reborn. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a big resurgence of interest, not surprisingly, in the later 60s. Um, it, it keeps coming up, and in a few places in America, there are, you know, essentially a group of people who really are involved in this, uh, centered around several of our big cities, and as well as uh, an area in uh, Ashland, Oregon. And um, at the same time, in Germany, in Scandinavia, in Central Europe, uh, his work is taken seriously, is studied by X percentage of the population. It's probably very modest. Um, I don't think you can ever kill it off, uh, but what it would take to get a major, a major, uh, a significant part of the population interested, uh, they'd have to be literally the equivalent of, of drag kicking and screaming from one room into the other. Uh, it's too much for most people. Mm -hmm. And if anything, uh, if they were to sit down and really read it and had been coming from a life of unfulfilled dreams, um, sexual dissatisfaction, 
uh, a general uh, state of, of depression and very little joy, very little real happiness, very little pleasure in their lives. To do so would be masochistic. It would only uh, underscore to them how miserable they are. And again, you know, you want to get better in your life, you really do have to be willing to go through some dark tunnels. Uh, important things, as a rule, don't come easily. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like there are a lot of people that uh, they they want to revel in their misery. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, um, that great phrase, misery loves company, is, mm. is terribly true. And for many people, you know, they hit a point in their life where... Um, they have. They feel this is the way it is. Uh, I know how happy I, I can be and how bad I can feel. Who's really, really happy in this life? Um, you know, I resign myself to um, you know uh, watching daytime TV and uh, you know dreaming my dreams, uh, but never really having a vital, exciting life myself. Um, if you know, you can talk yourself into anything, and to begin to turn that around. Uh, again, would entail a certain amount of self-reflection and realizing, you know, years that could have been better spent, uh, that could have been happier, that could have been fuller had you only had some tools or some knowledge outside of your fears, uh, the poor role models that you've had, um, getting through your own armoring, uh, Substituting pornography for, you know, um, ecstatic sexual love, um, focusing in on the world of having more things and more power rather than uh, more happiness and more satisfaction. You know, it sounds cliched, but there's nothing more important. Right, right. Yep. I'll tell you one thing. Um, I, none of us can say with, you know, certainty how things would have turned out for us uh, had we taken one road in life rather than another, but I cannot imagine um, having forged the career I have, which often has involved um, sustained anxiety for serious periods of time, especially as um, I've gone up against, in so many words, major institutions in the course of my UFO-related investigations. Um, things can get unnerving, and why do we do this, um, or how can we do it without damaging ourselves? Um, being fortified with uh, values that work for you, um, with knowing how to not become totally at affect of negative, uh, you know, stuff coming at you. Mm -hmm. um, to paraphrase, uh, well, favorite Mark Twain quote: "The difference between." Uh, the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Um, <laughs> a lot of people, you know, Dr. Baker wrote one book. He wrote many, many papers and articles, but his book is called Man in the Trap. And brilliant name, given that at a certain point, almost coming out of what you just said, is we build a trap around ourselves, we decorate it because we don't know how to get out of it, and, you know, better the devil that you know than you don't know. I think I'd rather stay in my trap and at least have my toys and, you know, a, a plotting, secure, if not totally satisfying, core cool relationship rather than take my chances by 
feeling all these icky things or exploring the dark corners of my past and I know what some of them are and I don't want to face them. Mm -hmm. I'd rather, you know, as uh, God, Billy Crystal's wonderful character on Saturday Night Live used to say, it's better to look marvelous than feel marvelous. Ricardo Montalban. He's so funny. But yeah, I mean, you know, um, at the same time, W.C. Fields' definition of tragedy was tragedy um, is a, a, a definition of comedy, I'm sorry, is uh, comedy is tragedy happening to somebody else. Hmm. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, misery does love company. Why the hell should we get involved in all this weird stuff? Hmm. Well, really. you know, it's it, it's almost like, uh, you know, and I was just reading this not too too long ago. And it was, it was talking about, you know, people on their deathbeds and, you know, their regrets and you know, mm. what they had wished they had, you know, did or didn't do. And uh, the the doctor who had wrote this article, he said the majority of people on their deathbed, they don't regret what they did in their life. They regret uh, what they didn't do. Wow. Bravo. And you know what? Yep. I, I think that informs so many lives. Not... Not that they weren't well-lived, but they could have been lived uh, with so much more excitement and adventure and enthusiasm and um, courage uh, and all the things that richen and deepen things. I'm one of many quotes of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. I'm not a Buddhist, but you know, you don't have to be an idiot to understand when a great person speaks simple words is um, live an interesting life so that when you are old, you can relive it in memory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm working on that. I got that one down totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it just it just seems like that um, that that people live their life in fear rather than um, possibilities. Or, or you know, enjoyment or things like that. We seem to be governed more about uh, the bad things that could happen to us, rather than you know the the possibility of the good things. That no, it makes us. all the sense in the world, Tim. If you think about the Judeo-Christian model, so to say, that most of us are brought up in, hmm. um, and for some people of faith, especially leaning into fundamentalism, um, I remember as a kid hearing. Somebody first used the phrase, a God-fearing person, mm -hmm. and immediately reacting inside of myself with my Hebrew school education uh, heading toward my bar mitzvah of, whoa, God-fearing? No, I, I know the stories in the Bible, but what I understand about them growing up in the form Jewish tradition is, yes, there are absolute truths written by real people, but there are allegories, analogies, morality tales, recycled earlier myths. Um, it's a wonderful thing to be brought up with, in a sense. And I thought, God-fearing? I am not interested. I was taught God is love. And God is any love. God that I'm supposed to fear, now that's blasphemy. I'm supposed to get hit by lightning, according to some people, when I say something like that. But I'm not interested in, you know, uh, thinking in terms of some great overriding spirit, uh, that I'm supposed to, you know, fear. And the other thing for me, 
circumspect on all organized religion to some degree or another is how some people, good people, brought up with a very strict interpretation of their holy text, feel, you know, it's all part of God's plan. And even though, you know, we mere mortals can't even begin to understand why God did this or why God did this, but my thought there, again, even as a kid, was, are you telling me that, you know, something terrible thing, like killing a million people in a war or the murder of a child or terrible tragedies are part they're supposed to happen because we're supposed to be miserable to learn the lessons I know you know one can't know happiness without its polar opposite but the deists such an interesting um, uh, philosophy um, for me gave us a model that I can live with if or anybody I think could uh, that works for me if I'm, you know, a strictly religious person or even um, borderline. And the deists included the great majority of our founding fathers, uh, including Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton and Franklin, Tom Paine. It was essentially, and you can go online or read scholarly books on it, deism, um, I understand and accept that there is some supreme animating spirit in this world, or however you want to put it, but after the miracle of creation, think of it theologically or scientifically, was established and set in motion, uh, God, per se, is not a micromanager. And we have been given the power to recognize good from evil, bad, you know, wrong from right, uh, kindness from brutality, um, and there is a randomness to the universe. Stuff happens. Uh, bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. I do not see that as part of some preordained plan by some you know, supernatural spirit. Um, and frankly, I resent that very sad and very frightened and resigned view, uh, also one where you give up a certain amount of... Um, you know, your self-decisiveness, and I, I, I don't know, I, I'm, probably there are things that are destined to happen, and other things, I am sure, that happen on their own. There is such a thing as a coincidence, mm-hmm. uh, and that doesn't mean that extraordinary things don't, you know, tend to organize themselves in the universe. Oh, no, 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 that's, uh, to me, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because I mean you yeah. you know you think about you think about the way that the universe was was created and the way that it operates I mean it's just uh, it, that's 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 going to happen shit happens <laughs> yeah that's the exactly. best way that's that's the best way to put it really you know I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Peter, one of the uh, things I wanted to uh, ask you, and I think that yeah. uh, this this is one of the things that uh, probably most people know Wilhelm Reich for was for his uh, uh, cloud busting ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, uh, so uh, I mean, are you are are you familiar with uh, with, with any of that? And well, you know, you, know, you want to uh, uh, tell us a little bit how he got uh, he got interested in that in the first place. Well, in the early 1950s, uh, with the advent of the birth of the horrific nuclear age, um, 
many of the best scientific minds uh, in the world were becoming concerned with um, the uh, potential, <clears throat> given the possibility of, of nuclear holocaust, of fallout. And it certainly hadn't escaped Reich's thinking in the early 50s. And it revolved around if you could move the atmosphere and kind of ground that terribly life-negative stuff, maybe uh, that would be part of the solution. Um, the principle that he was developing, this deceptively simple apparatus, um, I can best describe to you, again, with um, a pair of childhood memories, uh, if me or my sisters or my cousins were at our Nana's house, uh, my Russian grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, and you had a cut or a boil or, you know, if you're old enough, like a, a pimple, mm -hmm. um, what she would do would be to cut a potato in half hmm. and give it to you to hold against the thing for as long as you could. And the basic sensation was, you know, nice. It was sort of cooling. And um, it, there was nothing about it that seemed weird or strange to me. It was just some natural thing, and that was good. And then a few years later, when I was in the Boy Scouts, one of the things we learned was um, if you get a bee sting or other uh, insect uh, sting in nature, if there is water nearby, uh, the best thing you can do is pack some mud on it. You know, uh, well, what's really happening there is the vital natural energy in that potato, in that natural dirt and water mixture, has a drawing effect on the toxin. You tell me the reason. It's simply a fact. It draws it to the surface. It accelerates uh, uh, the crisis. It helps it, you know, come to fruition sooner and heal sooner as a result. And what Reich discovered is that if you took a series, and he, he experimented with different kinds of metal, uh, a series of long metal pipes, then um, attached to the end of each one, and a traditional cloud buster might be um, four over four um, pipes that might be different lengths or 10 or 15, 20 feet long, whatever. Uh, at the um, back end, you would attach to each one a long piece of industrial BX cable that had had the wire pulled out of it. I think everybody is familiar with the kind of BX cable that snakes through our homes right. and, uh, in which are the wires, but industrial is just that much bigger. Um, and then if those ends are grounded in moving water or a pond or a river or a deep well, the water acts as an attractor. And the action end of the pipes, which can be aimed out or up, begin to draw energy down from the atmosphere. Now, when Reich developed the first prototype, which was 54, I think, um, uh, Tom Ross, who was his caretaker um, on the estate in Rangeley, um, created the first one. Uh, I met Tom when he was very old on my first visit there uh, many years ago. Um, it it, it was at a time when that part of southern Maine was caught in a drought. Mm -hmm. And what happened was Reich began what he called a drawing operation. 
where the pipes were aimed in an easterly direction, namely toward the Atlantic Ocean, not far away, and began to elevate them a little bit each day. And over the next days and few weeks, the relative humidity index in the air increased each day until it was a great deal of humidity in the air for miles and miles around the cloud-busting operation. And it ultimately not only started to rain in that part of Maine, but the drought ended. And um, it was a real curiosity to uh, meteor- meteorologists, farmers, why there was it had happened roughly in the circular area around there, and the areas outside of it did not um, uh, get better. Um, a year or so later, um, he and a number of colleagues arranged for the ultimate field test. They did a, a very long study um, to figure out what the driest part of America was because whether the tests worked or they didn't work, they wanted um, their control sample, so to say, to be unquestionable. And um, Death Valley is it, but that was really impractical and, and would have been extremely unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um It was an area around Tucson, Arizona at the time, and I don't know what it is now, and they uh, brought two trailer-mounted full-scale cloudbusters out there from Maine, and they worked for several months, and it not only rained, um, every previous weather record uh, officially kept in um, that part of the country was broken. Um, On the weeks beforehand, it began to rain in more western cities, kind of on a gun sight line with where they were drawing from. Hmm. And ultimately, when rain did come to Tucson, right around, I mean, snow, uh, well, rain and snow for the first time in recorded memory, it snowed at the Tucson airport on Christmas. And there were flash floods, in some cases, that put people out of their homes at in an area where it had had five inches of measured rain, I believe, in the previous 50-odd years, um, local farmers and business people uh, took note. I mean, all this was observed, as well as accelerated UFO activity, and that's where the UFO uh, connection comes in. Strange as it seems, mm-hmm. um, these devices definitively, um, you know, after X number of times, you just have to make a conclusion, attracted UFO activity. And uh, Reich went so far as to aim uh, cloud busters at UFOs in the sky, and in every incident, and I'm talking multiply witnessed, recorded, sworn to, um, these unidentified things um, either started to wobble or get more pale or change color, leave the area, disappear. Um, and, of course, that sounds nuts. Even if you were not somebody who saw it, of course it sounds crazy. And remember... This is happening at the height of the McCarthy era, uh, a prudishness in America, a, uh, a mistrust of foreigners, etc. I mean, you can get into a whole social, sociopolitical analysis of it, but it couldn't have happened at a worse time. And um, Reich had so much uh, positive um, response from local people who would come out to the site and watch them um, as they did the cloud busting. I should also say, and these are all things recorded in Reich's last book, Contact with Space, 
Uh, only 500 copies of which were ever printed, but available in uh, you know Xerox copies. Hmm. Um, that the humidity in the air before it rained in the days, the week or so leading up to the rain beginning, um, was so high. And for me, things like this are so important and really exciting in doing this kind of research or studying such a sweeping subject. Grass seeds that were dormant for decades in the sand began to sprout up in the several acres surrounding the cloud-busting site where the two apparatuses were being used oh. without it having rained. Wow. That is just what it seems to be. Hmm. I just complete the thought, though, um, and, and, and I know I've been going on. No, no, um, no, we like that. <laughs> at, that at that point where um, he was being asked by local business people, one of the bankers, farmers uh, in that part of Arizona, to teach them, to show them, to give them a better idea of what had happened here, um, the case against his physician uh, and that interstate shipment of the accumulator was um, it needed his attention, and so he went back to Maine and made that decision to uh, use that courtroom opportunity in the manner that he did, and it was not a good decision. Uh, and um, there you go. That's a real tragedy because, I mean, considering what he had been doing then with the Cloudbuster, and then it and then it just got interrupted just uh, prematurely. I mean, yeah. you know, what 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 could have happened if he had been allowed to continue well, those experiments? The fact is, the technology works. Um, I first read about Cloudbusters probably when I was nineteen years old. Of course, they sounded terribly romantic and exciting and <laughs> science fictiony. But it was not until the 1980s that I was given an opportunity to see one of these uh, devices um, demonstrated. And it was on the farm of um, friends of our research group uh, that was centered uh, in Princeton, New, New Jersey, uh, outside of which now is the home of the American College of Organomy, which is a, a center of information uh, and research on the science. Um, but a number of us were invited to see this demonstration, and um, this was a cloudbuster that was mounted on the back of a pickup truck, hmm. and the long lengths of cable were in a farmer's pond. It was an overcast day, and our um, operator, who had been well-trained, um, described what he was going to do. Uh, it was really a perfect day for it because there were different types of cloud formations in the sky, and um, he very simply said, in so many words, um, that bank to the northeast there, um, I'm going to train the cloudbuster on it at such an angle, and I'm going to cut that bank of clouds in half. Then I'm going to remove these clouds over here. I'm going to create clouds over here. And uh, this was purely for the sake of demonstration. And if I tell you not only that it happened, but that first demonstration of aiming the thing at this very large, very specific cloud bank and seeing this huge opening begin to happen within 90 seconds, hmm. that you could see the jagged kind of shapes of the, the pipes on top of each other before it broke apart slowly. Um, 
it was a jaw-dropping experience. And when these things are working, they put off a definite toxicity. Um, that was discovered early on mm -hmm. with practitioners working right with them, including Reich, some of whom got extremely sick. Um, and so the one I was watching and the modern ones that are used um, are done with, uh, this was a remote cable. And the last thing that John did, uh, our operator, was he said, I'm going to bring it down horizontally and I'm going to turn it once. This is, again, purely for the sake of demonstration. And within, I would say, under half a minute, a wind came out of nowhere, blew some of the people's hats off. <laughs> the demonstration was over. And um, again, we had been told to keep our distance from it, at least 50 feet or whatever, but all of us, maybe there were a dozen or so of us, were so overcome at the end that we just ran toward it. And I saw a friend of mine throw up the lunch just right there. Oh, wow. Um, I had the experience that I've never had before or after coming into an energy field of feeling like somebody had taken a hairdryer, set it on high, and aimed it right up my nostrils. I felt my sinus cavities dry up just like that. And my first thought was, wow, and I backed off. Uh, and I think I developed a little cold, but it was more than worth it. It was it was phenomenal. Now, Cloudbusters work. Um, you can go online to uh, a remarkable scientific facility called the Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory, also known as Green Springs. Mm -hmm. It's located just outside of beautiful Ashland, uh, um, Oregon, and it's run by Dr. James DeMeo, who probably has done more actual cloud busting than anyone I'm aware of and trained more people to do it properly. And um, I don't think Jim is actively doing it now, um, but it, you can go to the archives and the website, I believe OBRL, uh, certainly Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory. It's also called Green Springs. You know, one or two Google hits will get you there. Um, he broke droughts for a number of countries on contract with their governments, broke droughts. And I'm talking about some major countries here in the first and, so to say, third world, uh, names you know, and um, was compelled to sign um, non-disclosure agreements because even though it works, the governments were, I guess, on a certain level, embarrassed that they were paying somebody to do it. Huh. Um, it's for real. It's for real. And... I think part of the tragedy, because Reich gave the schematics early on um, to the Air Force, to the White House. Uh, he loved his country, as few people except for immigrants who have escaped certain death by uh, coming, having been blessed to come to America. Um, he wanted this technology used. Part of the tragedy is that, let's just say, you know, a tiny pilot, $10 million cloud-busting operation was begun in uh, the Southwest, and it began to do what it would do, which was to shrink deserts mm -hmm. and um, elevate the humidity. I mean, there's never been a fully orchestrated, you know, cloud-busting operation of that kind of level in the history of the world. But if it worked, oh, my God, that means we've got to, we have to look at some of that other stuff that's icky, that makes us feel really uncomfortable, that we hate. Hmm. Eh, better let the earth dry up. Yeah. And I'm not kidding. 
Well, uh, Peter, um, we need to go ahead and take our break here. So when we come back, I want to uh, continue this conversation because I've got uh, some interesting questions uh, for you. So, yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, well, uh, I just uh, uh, want to remind our listeners that uh, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Our guest tonight is Peter Robbins. We will be right back, so please stay tuned. team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom built computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Now you can share the topics that drive the discussions of your favorite talk shows with TalkStream Live's topic-driven talk radio. List and promote real-time talk radio topics or post the topics that you want to hear. Hot topics are tweeted and retweeted and include simple click-to-listen audio links. The future of talk radio is topic-driven talk radio. Available now at TalkStreamLive.com. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. 
We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll earn points as you listen, points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up, so click the banner to join now. I'm Mike Bond here with Tim Schwartz, as usual, and our guest tonight is Peter Robbins. We're talking about uh, Wilhelm Reich and his Oregon uh, uh, energy theories and possibly his inventions that actually work. And w- one of the things I was I was thinking about while we were listening to, to Peter explain uh, some of the technology and the, the concepts behind this is, is I'm wondering myself how Oregon energy ties in to physics and science in general in other words is it based on particles on a quantum level a subatomic level is it based on gravitational forces what exactly is Oregon energy in its most basic form um, none of those it is an entirely different way at looking at physics in a sense Um, it is around us it is literally animating every one of our cells um, so it's life. It's life energy. Yeah, it, that is exactly what it is. The um, Victorians called it the ether. The Hindus referred to it it's in their prana. as the prana. Exactly. Yeah, prana. Yeah. It is the same thing. But Reich was he felt truly that organized religion was the opiate of the people. Uh, was half Jewish, but always very secular in his yeah. thinking, and yeah. felt that. Um, um, religions, organized religions, were simply a way of uh, using guilt to block energy uh, because happy, fully functioning people would follow their own paths and, you know, not uh, subdue themselves to um, somebody's version of of, uh, uh, fairy stories or, you know, lovely tales to govern the whole story of the world. but yes, the life energy. I couldn't have said it better. Well, but but see, my thing is, I have to say and have to wonder. All forms of energy have to have some sort of a physical, or or they have to have, energy and matter are interchangeable. Yeah. So on some level, organ energy has to be uh, particulate in some way. You know, so the best the, the the way I could be of most service here, Mike is there's, for me, um, I am not, I mean, I'm self-trained in my my scientific thinking, um, but to read one of any number uh, of his books um, that would explain it to you in in ways especially that um, a scientific mind could understand, and those titles would include the Bion Experiments, B-I-O-N, Ether, God, and Devil, Slash mm-hmm. cosmic superimposition. Okay. The, in, the invasion of these titles blow my mind. I mean, they're so powerful, and they say what these books are about. The mass psychology of fascism. 
Hmm. Right. The the invasion of compulsory sex morality. Okay, but but my but that's they talk about philosophical of the energy much better than I could ever. I I would love to do a follow up show after you've done um, some reading in this because you could probably help articulate it. Yeah, because it's going to have to be. It's going to have to somehow tie into the natural forces of the universe if it's a even if it's another form of, of energy. So the question is, what's the building, the basic building block of, say, for instance, living ener- energy? You know, is it? I mean, it's, it's obviously, uh, it's, it's clearly in pho- photography, it demonstrates there's something to do with with photons involved. Um, so there's, there's got to be, you know, other. It's got to tie in somewhere. There's got to be some sort of a logical. A basis or explanation for it, I guess. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying there's got to be a way to fit You're it into that right. paradigm. And, I mean, it's all laid out in his writing. Uh, also, um, Early Writings, Volume 1, uh, covers a great deal about this. Um, Reich had the most elegant and brief definition of life I have ever come upon in my reading, ever. Uh, it is, quote-unquote, pulsation within a membrane, expansion and contraction. Um, and again, this tension, charge, discharge, relaxation. We all, most of us know that feeling of, and I, pardon me if I wax on scientific here, uh, that feeling of being out in the countryside as a storm mm. is coming toward where you are. Yeah, but that's Everything supposed to gets be. still. Yeah, the but that's also, becomes, I mean, yeah. isn't that. That's when the atmosphere becomes electrically charged, right? Yes, correct. So The charge then builds and builds to a point where it discharges. At the amoebic well, level, that would be the splitting of a single organism. Yeah. At the um, meteorological level, that could be um, the confrontation of a warm front and a cold front, resulting in huge electrical discharge displays in terms of lightning and then with the discharge and the passage of the storm, uh, a very different feeling in the atmosphere. In the human sense, the fully expressed human orgasm would be the same thing. It literally revitalizes it. The problem in socially in the human realm is that most people, sadly, manufacture much more energy than they allow themselves or society uh, has conditioned to allow them to discharge. And so there is always holding in the organism. There's always resignation. There's always frustration. There's always, um, you know, in our culture, uh, you know, in the 70s, in the swinger era, uh, if I have more sex with more people, you know, I'll feel better. But it was never the case. You simply had more unsatisfying sex to some degree or another with more individuals who are probably also... Uh, reinforcing, um, you know, their modest expectations and feeling kind of hip doing it, perhaps. But um, the tragedy of human beings bioenergetically expressed in society is this culture that we live in. Good God. Yeah. Well, well I think you part know, of it's it, Mike, and just to complete one thought, is no matter if we grew up in a loving, healthy family, be it extremely religious or extremely secular, um, we were taught about pain. We were taught about suffering. We were taught about sacrifice. But talk of real pleasure. Um, 
is embarrassing. Um, and so, you know, sex has maintained its attitude in, in so much of culture uh, as something to hide away, as something that's dirty, as something that, um, you know, you mystify or you mechanize. Uh, again, for me, mm-hmm. I, I never... I, how can I say? It may sound really silly. I never really got porn. Um, it just seems, you know, at best such a second-rate expression of something um, that you should be seeking with every molecule of your being in real life. And at some point when we were growing up, strip clubs started to happen. And, you know, I, I thought about it sometimes watching great old episodes of The Sopranos with all these tough guys standing around and these women who give two shits about them, pardon me, um, uh, basically um, going through these sad theatrics and, you know, you feeling like a big guy because you're stuffing 20s into their G-string and smoking your cigar. But yeah. what a pathetic uh, commentary on natural yeah, expression. it really, on, is, a, know, it really is a sad. It is. But okay. here, here's the thing, though. I, I guess what I was getting at is that life is electrical. Mm-hmm. So this has to tie into electricity in some way. Yeah. It, the natural, I, 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 you know, not electricity in terms of um, plugging in something or a battery, but the natural manufacture of energy. Um, you know, it, I'm not sure how to use the word electricity, but it's certainly allegorically, yes. Um, we manufacture energy inside of ourselves. And again, if we're unable to fully discharge it, at certain points, um, it's always going to be rooted there and often become the basis for what we call neuroses, uh, an inability to attain real happiness and real satisfaction. So either uh, kind of trying to power through our own armor in ways that are either sadistic or masochistic or sadly being rewired to um, actually feel uh, that any contact is better than no contact and better to be hurt than left alone or um, <clears throat> inflict pain than, you know, do nothing. Uh, terrible models, and again, deeply rooted in the tragedy of the human experience for so many people. <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't give you a better answer on that, but again, I hope you will do some of that reading um, I know so few, so few people who actually read Reich outside of that small circle of friends around the world who I do stay in touch with on this, uh, and it's always exciting for me to see somebody that I know, respect, who is living a you know a, an interesting dynamic life, yep. begin to really get this stuff and um, accept it, appreciate it, apply it, uh, and recommend it to others. Well, actually, back in the seventies, not in the seventies, in the late eighties, I wrote my two fantasy novels, and they're they're now published in one volume. And in the second volume, there's a there's a guy who lives in the forest. I guess you could call him a a wizard of sorts. Yeah. But one of the things that he collects from the living things of the forest is orgon energy. <laughs> of course, it's kind of a kind of a raunchy, non politically correct story, but it's pretty it's funny. Novel. Yeah, yeah, pretty funny. Nice device. <laughs> uh, what's 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 the name of those uh, books again, Mike? Oh, yeah, that that's the yeah. Pulse for Saga, the oh, okay. Pulse for Saga, and uh, there are two novels. Uh, 
apples for a fable in Land of Ice, a Velvet Knife. So that would be in that would be in Land of Ice, a Velvet Knife. So, yeah. So they're funny. They make you laugh. <laughs> uh, Peter, I have a, I have a question um, sure. about the uh, cloud busting uh, device. Now, mm. um, I heard somebody, and I wish, and it may have been Larry Warren. I, I can't confirm that or not. Who had said that uh, that he had seen. A um, a cloudbuster at uh, the uh, uh, the base there at Rendlesham Forest. I mean, have you Absolutely heard that? Absolutely true. Is that true? Have okay, I can... heard it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, I, well, I let's talk about that. I wrote the book on it. All right, let's yes. talk about that. One of um, the details of Larry's story, which at first um, I didn't know what to think. It even made me angry that he had brought it up because we were already dealing um, with such controversy. Um, that who needs to throw Dr. Wright's work into it. But to actually place this uh, in time, Larry and I shook hands agreeing to co-write a book uh, about the Rendlesham Forest experience, uh, experience uh, which for your viewers who are not uh, aware of it, uh, is England's best-known and best-documented series of UFO events uh, occurring in late 1980 in Suffolk. And we were, I think, two days away from our very first visit there together, researching the book. Um, I, I was already, we were already seven or eight months into it. It was February of 1988, and uh, we were heading from my apartment uh, in Manhattan to Princeton, where we were going to be joined by Bud Hopkins, uh, our old colleague Antonio Gneas, and we were going to be giving um, a presentation for the Reich therapists, uh, for the agonomists and, and invited guests on UFOs. And um, at the time, I was very involved in fundraising for what went on to become the American College of Ogonomy, and I had a number of brochures lying around. And as we were getting ready to leave, Larry was just flipping through one, and he got to a picture of a cloudbuster, and he said, is this one of those cloudbuster things you're talking about? Because uh, we had, you know, Reich had come up in our... our more than half a year of developing our, our work relationship. And I said, yeah. He said, we had one of these on base, except that it was much bigger. Hmm. Uh, it was flatbed mounted. It was painted, you know, like olive drab, and it was near the runway. And I basically got in his face, couldn't have been, you know, blah, blah, blah. It would have needed uh, wells, and, you know, that's crazy. And he got in my face and said, no, that's what it was. I said, well, it would have had, you know, long lengths of BX cable. He said, it did. I hmm. said, well, did you have wells? He said, all over the base. And on our first trip, we explored uh, part of the base that you could get on, and there were wells at regular intervals. Um, why they had one there? Well, again, Reich, it's not that it's, it's difficult to construct one. Uh, using it responsibly is the real question. Um, but Reich had supplied schematics by the mid-'50s to the United States Air Force. They could have built them, you know, 50 years before. And 40 years before 30, whatever. And um, the fact was that as much as I pushed him on it, he was absolutely unbending. And I thought, damn, you know, I, it's not that I don't believe him, but it's... And he, he was behind me on this decision that unless we could find another witness, that it would just be not worth it. And in fact, in uh, August of 1991... We not only found one witness, but two, and highly credible, two retired Air Force sergeants stationed uh, on 
RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge at Sister Base, six miles away or so. Uh, they were a married couple, very straight up. And they were there, I think, 81 to 83, where Larry was there, 70, uh, was there, 80, 81. And they remembered it absolutely as Larry had remembered it. Uh, why it was there, we can only speculate. Um, if, you know, England is famous for overcast skies and to have something that could keep the skies clear over a runway, uh, you know, a, a, an air landing and departure area, uh, military especially, would be of real value. Um, I'm afraid that it's not out of the question that an inappropriately scaled up version of a cloudbuster was constructed, was there, and in fact was used years later at least, uh, specifically in October of 1987, um, to see if it could affect the weather, possibly in an aggressive manner as a weapon. And... Um, the so-called freak storm of October, I think it was the 17th or so, uh, 16th of 1987, uh, did damage unlike any other storm in the history of Great Britain. And I can tell you, because we arrived there five months later, um, that there's no question that within three hours or so, uh, and this is a, a Suffolk Forestry Commission stat, that something like 1.3 million mature evergreens were flattened snapped or otherwise destroyed in a ferocious windstorm that was called a hurricane, but wasn't a hurricane. Hurricanes, by definition, are moisture-driven and not a drop of rain fell. Hmm. Um, Dr. DeMeo, who I mentioned earlier, um, after I presented him um, the manuscript uh, to review, he did not tell me this at the time, but um, did after the fact, um, that not only had he, he had um, a very um, serious evidence that this might be the case, but um, laid out the specifics of a very similar freak storm that had destroyed a forest area adjacent to an American base in West Germany in the 70s. And um, we are stuck with that. The details of that um, are all covered uh, in the additional material in the expanded version of Left at Eastgate covered, uh, published in 2005. It's it's amazing the devastation that that storm caused uh, to that area. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, that that the place looks so different now than when I'll it did. I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> um, on our first visit, there came a day. Uh, you know, Larry and I were kind of attached at the hip, and we were there for a week. Um, and it was it was a very in, one of the most intense weeks of my life, to put it mildly. Um, but the we had a day where he took off to head back onto the base, and um, our hosts uh, Tony and Jan Warnock had very uh, kindly offered to drive me around the area and have an afternoon together. And one of the places we stopped was a grove of holly trees that were thought to be either the first or the second oldest in all of Great Britain and all of the British Isles. These trees were 500 years old if they were a day, and I, I I have some black and white photographs stuck away. I, I, I must take them out and recheck them. But some of these trees were like a meter, three feet across. Mm. And they were torn to shreds. They were ripped up. They were snapped. Impossible. But there it was. Um, 
I remember one of the descriptions uh, in interviewing people on that first trip that were willing to speak with us, uh, a number of people, especially older people, said, whatever it was, it wasn't natural. That was the phrase they used. Hmm. Somebody described a slate shingle flying off a house and embedding itself, going straight through the plate glass window of a house, the equivalent of several blocks away, and embedding itself in the wall like an axe head. Um, it's amazing no one was killed, and I think only, I don't know, three buildings received serious damage. And These are well-built structures overall, and many of them have really stood the test of time. Uh, the house that Larry and I kept returning to, the mainframe there, was from uh, 1500. Um, but you're dealing with extraordinary forces here and used in an aggressive manner, which Reich had never contemplated, uh, or I'm, I'm sure it would have horrified him and broken his heart at the same time. Um, <clears throat> they are capable of tremendous damage. Well, I, I suppose then the question is, is that uh, was the Cloudbuster there before the UFO incident or afterwards? Yeah, I mean, is there? Any... It was there before and afterward. Um, so, the so, events happened. So, if they were if they were using it, you know, before the UFO incident, because you know you had stated earlier that when uh, Reich had been doing his experiments, um, then uh, UFO activity also started to increase in the area where he was uh, conducting his cloud dusting. So, I wonder if there is a correlation between the two there. Well, um, wonder away. Um, I the fact that that apparatus was there, uh, I'm a hundred percent convinced uh, by my three witnesses. The similar case that Dr. DeMeo has reported in in Germany, um, but we have no indication, and I've never had a shred of proof that they were deployed, that it was deployed at any time relative to the events of 1980. Mm -hmm. The storm that we're talking about, the October storm, was 1987. Right. And that that device had long since disappeared from that area near uh, the Rendlesham, uh, near the RF Bentwaters flight line at the time, I understand, probably by years. But, yeah, it was there before and after. And, again, Larry was on that base from December of 80 through March of 81. So now, have you uh, have you received any other reports of uh, cloudbusters showing up at military installations? Because I, f I find that really interesting. You know, as you said, that uh, Reich had uh, sent these plans uh, to the Air Force, and you know, obviously never you know received any <laughs> uh, notice. Yeah, right. right. So I mean, you know, is this something that is uh, is being used at other places as well? I wonder. A lot of people speculate on that. I've never seen evidence of it, but nothing could surprise me less. And this is not to be confused with other so-called theoretical or actual, you know, weather weapons. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, or it's... tests of technologies uh, to use, uh, you know, nature as a weapon, so to say. Well, I mean, you know, considering the, uh, um, say, like the HARP, array that was uh, that was being used up in Alaska and you know and, and experiments yeah. like that you know it, it, it wouldn't surprise me that yeah. the, that and the again, military this has nothing to do with harp but you're absolutely right mm -hmm. um, where there's a uh, inquisitive nature and a desire to find more sophisticated ways to kill people imagine you know if we really um, could sharpen this technology 
and militarize these kinds of things. Um, and, you know, a lot of people theorize or think, and it certainly well may be true, that um, certain uh, storms, shall we say, have not been natural in their origin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot more hype and hyperbole that that's the case than is actually the case. Um, and when it is the case, it's near impossible to establish beyond um, a reasonable doubt. But, you know, if you're in the business of um, war, military, uh, power, um, you know, Stanton Friedman, um, to digress for one moment, um, many years ago said something that now is just taken um, as verbatim. For governments, um, the thing that they are most attracted to about UFO-related advanced technology has very little to do with um, benefit to humanity overall. It's whoever cracks that code first wins all the marbles. We got that. Don't even think about, you know, launching a missile or something, or we will vaporize you with our, you know, advanced uh, post-space-age technology here. Um, It's a tragic commentary on the armored nature of man, but it's the only game in town these days Mm -hmm. at that level. Well, you know, it it also reminds me of um, when when Reich was uh, initially doing some experiments, and and I'm and I'm going to severely paraphrase here, Peter. So you'll have to forgive mm-hmm. me, and, sure. and and then offer corrections, you know, afterwards. Sure. But uh, I think wasn't he doing some experiments to see if he could uh, um, use organ? Basically, as a uh, um, uh, to to dissipate radiation, you know, atomic radiation in the in the environment, and when he was working in a laboratory with that, he actually ended up actually um, having almost a, a, a crisis of uh, radiation levels uh, uh, just increasing. Uh, I think you know exponentially. Are you are you, are you familiar with that story? We're talking um, actually about two different. Um uh, experiments, if you will. Okay. Um, there is, you're absolutely right. Um, in the early 50s, the concern about um, was there a way to diminish, deplete, minimize radiation in terms of fallout that everybody was concerned with, given uh, our paranoia, understandably, about nuclear war at the time, that was in his mind when he began to develop the apparatus, which ultimately was applied in a very different way. Several years before that, I think about 1948, um, what they had done was something um, in the student laboratory uh, on Rangeley. um, They had built a room that literally was an orgone energy accumulator, and should talk about this here. Mm -hmm. An orgone energy accumulator is an equally deceptively simple simple device, and the, the term is properly pronounced orgone, not orgon. Uh, which is a a gas found in nature. Um, What happened here was he developed the accumulator in the 40s, and what he found was that if you create a container um, and an orgone energy accumulator, bastardly called in popular culture an orgon box, um, is a very simple um, construction of about the size of, say, an old-fashioned phone booth, big enough to sit in, um, of layers of organic and inorganic material, often, say, plywood and steel wool. 
the organic material would hold energy in nature where the inorganic material, the metallic material, reflects it. And the more layers of organic and inorganic, um, the more the charge potential within the accumulator. And if you were to sit in a properly constructed accumulator um, and you weren't like totally, you know, wound tight as a, a watch spring or heavily armored guy, you would feel very, very quickly, within a minute or two, a warmth on your skin, a tingling, mm -hmm. and it would build. And if you are in the dark, at a certain point, you begin to see what Wright called spinning waves, tiny dots of energy, just spinning through space for a moment. And you can see it in nature, very simply. Um, many of us did as children, but we're early on, if we you know, <laughs> mentioned it to an adult, we're told that, well, you're just seeing things. Namely, if you lie on your back and you look up at the sky and you relax your eyes, you will begin to see, you know, billions and billions of little bits of movement. That is actual living energy in the air. Of course, it seems, no, it's a uh, classic science is it's Brownian movement on the, uh, the eyeball or other mechanical explanations to explain mm -hmm. away something Right. that science should simply be in awe of, even if it doesn't fully understand it, uh, or if it doesn't come under its uh, mechanical laws of, of Western physics. So um, so it can't be the, the stimulation of of uh, the rods and cones of the eye, or something well, like that? Well, um, let's say uh, if you're blind, um, yeah. at, or you close your eyes, and you do the same thing that I just suggested with the sky, but you just relax and you just, uh, in an ideal situation, in the dark, um, if you actually observe, which very few of us do when our eyes are closed, we're thinking our thoughts, And but I'm doing it right now, and I'm seeing either movement or the illusion of movement. Um, I think that's essentially the same energetic function because we are surrounded. We are animated by um, yeah. this energy. Um, again, ether, prana, uh, or go and call it what you will. Um, but if you stay in an accumulator too long, it's not like anything terrible will happen to you, right. but you can come out feeling tired and dehydrated. Um, the novelty, the excitement of sitting in an accumulator for the first time in some years, that will often happen to me on the first or second sitting. I'll stay in for a few minutes too long, and you, know, you come out like, whoa, <laughs> something <laughs> just happened in there. Um, mm. And, you know, I passed a peak where I was feeling really animated, and now I'm I think I need a glass of water, and I'll sit down for a few minutes uh, and then get back to it. Uh, anybody can construct this. Um, very few people do. Uh, many people who get seriously involved in the work, whatever their level of education, myself included, have replicated a number of Reich's experiments. Um, Jim DeMeo uh, published a wonderful book years ago, which is a very simple manual on uh, manufacturing um, a orgone accumulator. Um, I'm trying to think if I have a copy on my shelf right here. But again, um, if you Google James DeMeo, D-E capital M-E-O, and uh, you know in the title type in accumulator or orgone or Reich, uh, it will come up. Um, also, you can do the same thing 
in a more flexible way. Um, you, there are certain companies um, that manufacture these things, uh, either on order or for stock, or you can do it yourself. You can make an orgone energy accumulator blanket by taking layers of cotton um, or felt and um, steel wool, um, stitching them together alternatively, putting a cover on it, and sitting with it you know, on your lap. Um, it can speed up healing. Uh, it can make you feel better. Uh, this is real. And the mantra for sophisticates in the scientific world and doubters is, it can't be, therefore it isn't. Therefore, it either is something else or somebody, you know, longing to have it be that way and manufacturing those feelings in their head. I mean, if this was real, it would have changed the world decades ago, and I'm a sophisticated person. Why wouldn't such a technology, if it's so easy to make, why wouldn't everybody be doing it? Well, welcome to the wonderful world of, you know, uh, <laughs> the world we live in. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Well, uh, Peter, we only, uh, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left in our program, so I wanted to uh, give you the chance to uh, let us, uh, let our listeners know uh, where they can find out more about you uh, online, uh, some of the, some of your books that they can uh, look up on Amazon, and uh, are you are you doing anything in the uh, near future that uh, you want everyone to know about lectures, things like that? Well, thank you for asking. Um, my uh, Left at Eastgate, which I co-wrote with Larry Warren. Uh, is available from Amazon or any other uh, online bookseller and some bookstores. Um, Deliberate Deception, a case of disinformation in the UFO research community, is a book I, I published last year online for free. It is not an ebook and it is not an actual book, but it is uh, 450 pages of um, specific analysis of a disinformation campaign conducted relative to uh, the Rendlesham Forest incident, and then something like 350 or so pages of raw data and photographs, part of Larry's and my archive, making anybody into uh, certainly a very serious entry-level student of the subject to see the raw material for themselves. That, by, by the way, Peter, that is an excellent book, and I, I oh, highly recommend everyone to to check that out. I really do. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me because um, it was like the, la the last two books I've written have been no fun from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. They were just important books, and I resented having to write them um, at the same time. They compelled me to do, I think, some of my best investigative work in some years, and it's a damn shame I had to. Um, you can download uh, Deliberate Deception by going to the website of um, Phenomena Magazine, a terrific free monthly on the paranormal that anybody can get a subscription yep. to at no cost. Um, yep. They're based in Manchester. Managing editor Steve Mira, one of my favorite people in, in UFO work. Um, right. Go to their website and find um, the box that says Special Reports. And you uh, it's in the form of seven cyber books that you simply download onto your computer, and it's yours. Uh, my most recent book, published in September, is called Halt in Woodbridge. And it is the story of a United States Air Force colonel's 30 years uh, attempting 
to destroy the reputation and credibility of a very courageous, um, authentic UFO witness and whistleblower. Uh, that is available from Amazon. I'm very pleased to say it's uh, in regular book form and in Kindle, and the Kindle edition is only $3.99, so take a chance, folks. Um, I am excited to say uh, less than a week from now I will have a new website up and running, and I'll give you that, the URL to you guys uh, as soon as it is. In the meantime, anybody who is on Facebook can keep up with my schedule there or um, uh, radio shows and um, other media stuff, uh, uh, certainly. Um, the next couple of months, uh, really quite exciting for me. Next month, I'll be speaking in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, the middle of the month at the wonderful Swamp Gas UFO Conference, uh, which is uh, acknowledging, I think, half a century since J. Allen Hynek came up with that absurd phrase. And uh, that's yep. Michigan MUFON sponsoring a terrific uh, event. I'll be speaking for New Jersey Fringe, uh, organization in Jersey there, um, in April. I'll be at the Paradigm Symposium um, in Minnesota in May, as hopefully as well as Pine Bush, New York. Um, one that I'm really looking forward to is in uh, late June. Last weekend in June, my co-author Larry Warren and I on Left at East Gate uh, we'll be speaking together for the first time in several years um, at the Glasgow Paranormal and UFO Conference in wonderful Glasgow, Scotland. I will then be traveling from there to Athens, where I'll meet up with Richard Dolan, and we will be, ironically, giving a series of talks um, to colleagues, friends, uh, wonderful acquaintances of mine in Greece who come into the UFO subject from their passionate interest, study, and involvement in Dr. Reich's work. I'll be speaking Ohio MUFON in March, um, Kingston, New York, hopefully in um, July, um, and we'll be um, the MC for this year's MUFON International Symposium outside of Orlando in August, and right now, hello Alabama in November, a couple of other dates filling in, some very exciting projects at hand as well. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like that uh, you've got a busy schedule coming up here. I'm glad we were able to get yeah. you on tonight. Yep, exactly. Me too. Very exciting. And, you know, I'm often good on short notice, guys. So if, you know, a guest is abducted by aliens or struck <laughs> by lightning or something, give me a try. It's always a pleasure to be on with you guys. And, of course, my old soul brother friend, Mr. Timothy Green Beckley. Uh, well, thank you, Peter, and uh, uh, stay uh, stay stay on the line here after we finish up the show. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit after we uh, get off the air. Great. But uh, Mike, we need to uh, wrap it up here. So I'm yep. glad uh, glad we, to uh, talk yep. to you tonight. We appreciate it. Yes, and a real pleasure, it. guys. Truly, well, and an honor. All right. Well, all right. thank you, man. Yep. Thank you, you Peter. All right. So uh, uh, thank you, our our beloved listeners. We're glad that you could join us tonight. I'm Tim Swartz. You've been listening to The Outer Edge. Stay tuned uh, this time next week, where I'm sure we'll have another fascinating program. So from Mike Bott and myself, good night and have a great tomorrow. <laughs>